0: This is the politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Um, just on audio today, um, we'll be returning back to our sort of TV show slash podcast next week. But this week is is just audio. Um, in this episode, I speak to UKIP MP Douglas Carswell about a range of, of topics. Obviously, the EU referendum central to those, but also about some of uh, his political journey and his views on things and where UKIP um might go in the future. It was a great conversation that I had with him um earlier today in the House of Commons, and you'll be able to hear that conversation in this episode. Before I get on to Douglas Carswell though, I wanted to address um a couple of polls that have come out briefly. Um, we'll be focusing on them sort of in more detail uh in the coming sort of weeks. Um the first would be, I guess, a poll result, uh from America, where Donald Trump won the Nevada caucuses last night, which many um, has prompted many to start thinking, well, is Donald Trump inevitable now? And I've long said that I think the people that think he's not going to be the nominee are guilty of a bit of wishful thinking. And it seems to me that as long as the uh, field remains as diverse as as it is, and to be more blunt, as long as it isn't a two-horse race you can see how Donald Trump will continue to mop up states and lots of delegates with around 40% of the vote. But it also strikes me that as people are dropping out, his vote share does seem to be incrementally increasing too. Now that might be related to the specific demographics in specific states, we can't be sure yet. But I have a suspicion that as people drop out, yes, the sort of moderate Wing, the, the Marco Rubio essentially will pick up the lion's share of some of those votes. I'm thinking of people like Jeb Bush, John Kasich, if he ever does drop out. Um, but it's not clear to me that that's going to be enough unless Ted Cruz drops out. Um, while it's a, a three or war horse race, Donald Trump looks very strong. And I think the key point is that the timing of this is going to be essential. On, on March 15th, I believe we have um, Florida. And Ohio, and if Trump goes into those races with a huge delegate lead and comes out of them with a huge delegate lead, he is going to be unstoppable if he isn't already. So things can change. Um, there can be um, lots of things can happen in politics, um, but unless the dynamics of that race change quite dramatically, Donald Trump looks like the nominee. And I'm right, I'm working on a piece at the moment looking at whether or not he can actually beat Hillary Clinton because. There is this assumption, of course, that Hillary Clinton um, would wallop him. It's an assumption that I think is fair, but maybe we take it for granted a bit. Um, There's a poll I'm looking at done by YouGov, and I'll I'll do a piece on this in the coming days, which shows that Hillary Clinton's favourable ratings amongst black and Hispanic voters are uh, hugely superior to Donald Trump's. Um, And she also leads him on being ready to be commander in chief. So you can see how the Clinton campaign will take on Trump. But there's a couple of things you might be surprised at. One is that if you take the whole population of America, favorability ratings for Trump and Clinton are pretty much the same. And if you look at um, how confident voters would be in Trump and Clinton's ability to handle the, uh, the economy, they're pretty similar too. So although I think the demographics are with Hillary Clinton... And you know, as 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 minds are concentrated on this, you know, the experience card I suspect will play in her favour. We should we should remember that she is something of a flawed candidate, or at least has has flaws in her candidacy, in her own right. And there's she certainly has a trust issue, and this ongoing furore over her emails. So, I think Hillary Clinton would beat Donald Trump if indeed he is the nominee, but we can't take it for granted. Um, another poll I've been looking at is one by Ian Warren who many listeners will know as election data um, on Twitter. Um, He's conducted a series of polling uh, with YouGov of Labour Party members. Now, I want to um, deal with that um, in a separate episode dedicated to Labour again, because we haven't really done that for a little while. Um, But I'll talk about it briefly. And I think for those that haven't seen it, there's a couple of points you can mention. I think the first is that what struck me more than anything is that the Um, Labour Party membership view on issues is very divergent from the general public. You know, on issues like Trident, on issues uh, like public spending, um, immigration, for example, isn't seen as a big issue for Labour members, but is the number one issue for the public. Almost you name it, the Labour Party members have views that differ from the general public. Now, that in itself... May not be that surprising. I think you know members of political parties are likely to have views that differ from the population at large. I am sure, if we polled um, conservative members on a host of issues such as gay marriage uh, or Europe, certainly the death penalty, possibly. You know, I'm speculating, Um, and I'm not speculating to sort of gloss over the Labour Party members' views, but just to sort of point out that members. You know, members of political parties are not the electorate, and they will have divergent views. So maybe we shouldn't see that as surprising. But I guess given the power that Labour Party members have, um, you know, over the choice of leader at the moment, um, and and the groundswell of support that they have for Jeremy Corbyn, it is very difficult to see a Jeremy Corbyn uh, being replaced in a leadership contest, or, or b the person that Evan ends up replacing him you know, not having to adhere to quite a stringently left-wing platform to be um, chosen by the members. Um, having said that, there were elements of the poll where you could see sort of a chink of light, maybe, if you like, for the moderate wing. Um, I think it's around two-fifths suggested that Jeremy Corbyn should go at some point if he does badly in May. I and mean, So there's... I wouldn't place too much... Um, impetus on that number but I think that it shows that you know, a disastrous May um, could change the terms of the debate but actually I thought what was more interesting was that Ian did a bunch of horse race polling looking at different potential leadership contests, now Jeremy Corbyn would be re-elected with a whopping landslide almost to the matter, who he was up against, so you know, ultimately any leadership co- uh, contest that he was in would likely uh, result in him being re-elected and frankly, therefore, stronger. But if he wasn't in it, um, he tested John McDonald's position and it was far from clear uh, that John McDonald would be elected. Uh, I think he was, I think, rather than have um, first preferences in the 60s, which Jeremy Corbyn had, like McDonald's were, I believe, somewhere in the 30s or 40s. I haven't got the numbers in front of me. Um... It was a much closer race, Tom Watson, Hillary Benn, very competitive. So this idea that Jeremy Corbyn can stand down and hand over to a chosen successor, potentially a John MacDonald, isn't true. So I suppose what I conclude from that poll, briefly, and we'll talk about it in more detail another time, is that the Labour Party has quite clearly moved to the left, we kind of knew that already, in its membership, because there are different members within it. But also, if kind of Jeremy Corbyn um, does stay on. For Jeremy Corbyn's project to survive he has to stay on himself he, you know, the ability of him to be able to um, hand over to an anointed successor um, is limited but anyway enough, enough on that, more on that for another day um, I'm now going to play my conversation with Douglas Carswell from earlier today, um, I started off by asking um, Douglas why it was that Europe motivated him so much, here's that conversation Um, Douglas Carswell, thank you for joining me. Um, I wanted to start today by asking you a bit about Europe before we talk about the referendum campaign itself. I mean, what is it about Europe that motivates you so much and makes you so certain that leaving is the right course of action to take? Obviously, you've been through something of a political journey in the last couple of years, I think it's fair to say. Um, You must feel convinced that leave is the right course of action. What, What makes you so? I think one of the key moments
1: was when... I arrived in my first year at university and I read a book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers by Paul Kennedy and it argued very convincingly that the reason why Europe has produced the greatest civilization on the planet and undoubtedly it has is because Europe's not been centrally organised by grand design. Europe has had political decentralisation. Other civilizations have been presided over by a a mandarinet, if you like and um, it's always stalled their development. Europe's genius lay in the fact that she had what management consultants would call systems competition. And I've always felt that actually the European Union hinders Europe and is, is not really in keeping with Europe's history and true cultural traditions. So that, at an early stage, woke me up to the fact that there's something very un-European about the european union project and, and then there's also this issue of who the heck do these people think they are trying to tell us how to live our lives i mean i i think that actually the best thing about life is the fact you're able to decide stuff yourself and isn't it wonderful that we live in a world where people can live the way they want to live and have the lifestyles they want to have and have freedom and, and choice. The idea that a small group of people in Brussels on tax-free salaries know how to organise things for us, it, it, it feels wrong. And it is wrong. And we need to stop it. We need to take back control as a country. But I think Europe as a whole needs to fundamentally change
0: and reject this EU project. I mean, looking at the campaign, obviously, you know, it's gathered momentum in the last um, couple of weeks. I mean, how do you assess, as we sit here in the end of February, how do you assess the state of the Leave campaign at the moment? There's obviously these different groups. Um, you know, you're all in Vote Leave, of course, as Leave.eu grassroots out, all these different organisations. One of the questions that we had was from Aaron Bell, who asked you, um, it wouldn't be better if there was one organisation with one leader and one message. Wouldn't that be easier to, to, to help you win that argument with the British public? I mean, how,
1: how do you assess the campaign? Aaron asked a very good question, but Fundamentally, the Eurosceptic movement is an authentic, popular, grassroots movement. So by definition, you're going to get different strands of sentiment and, and, and opinion. And that, that's a measure of its, its very vitality. What, what needs to happen, and Aaron is absolutely right on this point, what needs to happen is that we have cohesion. And that's starting to happen. And the real game-changer in this was Horace uh, and, and, and Michael Gove uh, coming out uh, a few days ago. Um, we know that one campaign group will get official designation. I'm, I'm pretty clear in my mind that that will be Vote Leave. But you know, um, I'm not making the decision. It's the Electoral Commission making the decision. I think the key thing is we all we all row in behind whichever group gets designation. But even then, you know, we're building a coalition, and there are good, decent socialists out there who will completely disagree with Carswell libertarian ideas about this and that, but we can agree that we need to take back control and renew democracy. So let's, let's recognise that this is going to be a, a broad-based movement. Yes, we've got some really big heavyweight figures leading it,
0: but actually it's a movement that belongs to, to everyone talks about a broad-based movement. Um, if you look at the opinion polls at the moment, immigration is usually top of mind for the public's concerns. And certainly when there was a Comrades poll recently that said, um, you know, of those powers people wanted repatriated, you know, the power to control borders and immigration was seen as the, the most important. What role do you see this debate about immigration playing in the EU campaign? I think you've spoken before about how it can't be the be-all and end-all. We need, we need to take back control. And one of the reasons why I'm
1: so keen to make sure that we vote to take back control, is because the high-risk option is that we leave it to the European Union to run things. The European Union can't manage its own borders. It can't manage its own currency. Look at the migration crisis. It hasn't got a grip on it. It would be high-risk for us to stay within the European Union. We need to take back control of our borders. But that is not the same and must never be portrayed as the same as closing your borders. Look, you're recording this interview on a Sony. Sony device that's probably built in Japan, well, designed in Japan, probably using technology from California and and, and chips from South Korea, and the plastic that coats it was probably made from oil from the Gulf. It is a product of international trading cooperation. And you know what? The living standard we have and the society we have is a product of international cooperation, and that does mean you have to have labour mobility and you're going to have to have increasing rates of labour mobility. That's all the more reason why we need to be able to control our borders and control that labour mobility. It's not the same as rejecting that. It's actually the arguments in favour of being able to have an Australian type points-based system are very sensible and very pragmatic and very good for the economic uh, uh, liberalisation um, that we need. It's the opposite
0: of... um, you know, John Bull nativism. Because there's a risk, isn't there, that if this becomes about being anti-immigration per se, then that's only going to appeal to a, a minority, really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I have strong views
1: about immigration, but having strong views about immigration is not the same as being anti-immigrant. I'm actually, I, I, think there's something really quite amazing about some of the people I know. You've travelled the world,
0: haven't you?
1: Yeah. Is there something amazing about people who are prepared to? travel halfway around the planet to make their lives and their families' lives better and and we, we I would actually say that's a profoundly good thing that they're, they're trying to do um, but you know we as a country need to have the right to control who comes here and those two are not mutually exclusive, what we must never do is by all means criticise the immigration system don't criticise individual immigrants they, they want the best for their families the same as anyone else
0: one of the key challenges is going to be to overcome the status quo. If we look at referenda um, that happened in the past, I think it's fair to say that the status quo usually has an inbuilt advantage because it's easier not to do anything, it's easier just to stay as you are. Right? I mean, um, and you already see with the Prime Minister, his messaging seems to be around, don't take a leap into the dark. How do you convince those waverers that maybe sympathise with your argument on the EU that they have to take that extra step and to so well, believe? I would say it's about the safer optional.
1: The safer option is to vote to leave. Why? Because there is no European status quo. The European Union is fundamentally changing. The European Union is going to federalise. It is going to fuse, if you like, into this hard cool super state. The idea that the status quo is an option, it simply isn't. This is not a choice between the status quo and self-government. This is the choice between taking back control or staying part of a failing project. That would be an incredibly risky option. Look look at your TV screens. Look at, look at the migration crisis. Look at the Euro crisis. The people running the European Union haven't even managed to get to grips with the Greek crisis, for goodness sake, nearly a decade after it started. It would be incredibly risky to vote to remain part of that bloc. Even when David Cameron went to Europe in good faith and argued, as I'm sure he did, determinedly for reform, Even when he said, please give us real change, or we as a country the second biggest contributor to the EU budget may walk away. Even when he did all of those things, he couldn't get significant reform. Doesn't that tell you that the European Union is not capable of reform? It's pretty high risk to remain part of a club that is in serious trouble and doesn't want to do anything about it. The devil's advocate argument,
0: of course, being that once Britain, say Britain did leave... Then we become this remote island on the periphery that doesn't isn't able to influence some of those discussions that will have to happen anyway about, for example, the migrant crisis. I mean, is, is, would, it, would Britain be isolated? Do you think? A lot of the official class,
1: the sort of people who aspire to sitting around the table in Brussels, the career politicians, they're, they're obsessed about this idea of somehow losing influence. But how do you have more influence by? being governed by a European Commission when 96% of the people working for that institution are non-UK nationals? How do you have more influence when you have only a small percentage of the voting rights and can be outvoted by qualified majority voting? How do you have influence in trade negotiations when you're part of a body that means you have 128, say, in the Eurocrat doing those international negotiations representing you in the WTO? Actually, if you want real control, you need to take back control. Taking back control means you have not just real influence, you have real control. You cannot possibly believe that you have more control over your country's future by being part of the European Union. By definition, if you do that,
0: you lose control. We need to take back control. I mean, some have suggested that a Leave vote would be the sort of forerunner to a further renegotiation with the European Union. I think when Boris Johnson gave his statement when he announced he was backing leave, it seemed he seemed to suggest that actually that was the reason why he did that. I mean, presumably you're quite sceptical that that would ever be the case. No, let's be straight. I want to vote leave to leave.
1: And if you vote leave, we're going to leave. But look, the European Union is still going to be there. My Essex constituency overlooks the North Sea. You don't have to sail too far to get to Holland. We want good relations with the European Union. We want to make sure that we can have good trade relations with the European Union. We actually want to have a situation where we can have better trade relations without being in a political union. We need to have... At the moment, we've spent decades being a bad tenant. We want to be a good neighbour. Of course, we're going to have to make sure that once we've left the European Union, we negotiate those good relations with our neighbours, and there are going to be a whole range of areas where where, where we can work with them. Um, but that doesn't
0: mean you have political union. How do you see UKIP's role in this campaign? Because I mean, Leo Barassi uh, writes in on Twitter that if you look at some of the polling around UKIP, 49% unfavourable towards UKIP as a political party, 50% unfavourable towards Nigel Farage. Is there a danger that if this campaign is seen as too closely aligned with UKIP, that some people might be put off. Well,
1: you don't even need to look there. I mean, look at the general election results. 87% of people didn't vote for UKIP. Now, I'm I'm, I'm not making a point. It's a statement of fact. 87% of people did not vote for my party. So what does that tell you? Well, if you want to win a referendum with 50% plus one, you've got to work with others. And that's exactly what we're doing. And I think we're doing it very successfully. Vote Leave has um, support from the Labour Parliamentary Party, from the Labour grassroots, from the uh, Conservative Party. Um, it's got 100% support from the UKIP Parliamentary Party. Um, <laughs> I- in fact, the overwhelming majority of UKIP's 500 local councillors spread across the country are now signed up. So we've got, we've got an organisation that's got broad cross-party support and it's got support, actually, most of all from people who don't define themselves in party political terms. So I, I, I think that's, that's what you've got to do. This is about more than just one party. If this was just about UKIP, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be so optimistic. But actually what's happened in the past few, few days is people start to realise this is about something, a slightly higher principle than which group of politicians get elected in an election. There will be life after the referendum of course, whichever way whichever way it goes. And I think the most well, I, I mean, I hope I hope that the Eurocrats that lose their jobs in Brussels as a result of us coming out are able to find to find to find work. But I think, you know, the only jobs that will be lost will be from uh, a, a few Eurocrats. Actually, I you know, I think you say there'll be life after we come out? I think I think actually there will be a, a, a very
0: prosperous future for this country if we come out. I think the most common sort of Line of questioning that we had on social media, which uh, Chris Drew and Matt Grist kind of both alluded to, but there were others. Was what happens to UKIP after this referendum? I mean, win or lose, there's obviously going to be huge challenges for the party. Win and presumably the raison d'être of UKIP is gone. Lose and then the raison d'être has been rejected. So I'm got to assume you're going to disagree that UKIP's finished after the referendum. But that is an accusation that some people say. So what, what do you see the future for UKIP being after the uh, after the referendum result,
1: whichever way it goes? Whichever way it goes, there are so many things about this country that need to change, not just our relationship with Europe. You know, you've got in Westminster a cartel um, where the two-and-a-half party system has basically been rigged by the career politicians. The issue of short money, for example. You've had these gentlemen's agreements between uh, different politicians to basically spend public money on political parties for years. They've agreed to, I would say, write the electoral rules for their advantage, with a party system that means that they've got lots of safe seats and sinecures. They've got a patronage system that works for the cartels. And as a consequence of these cartels in Westminster, areas of public policy that should have been subject to fierce debate haven't been. Take the family courts as an example. We need a party that stands up and says, we need openness and transparency in the family courts. UKIP is doing that and can do that. We need a party that says, we need real bank reform. We, we need to stop using quantitative easing and cheap money as a, as a form of welfare payments for bankers. UKIP's doing that. There are a whole range of different areas, defence procurement, energy policy, where UKIP is writing alternative policies to offer a real, credible, radical, unapologetically free market alternative to what we have in place today. And, and I think the need for that has never been greater. There's
0: a challenge there still, isn't there, with UKIP? So you talked earlier about broadening you know, broadening the appeal beyond the 13% that voted for you at the general election. But of course, that could take many different directions in terms of how that goes. There's the kind of small-c conservative, sort of quite you know, small-state libertarian argument, but then there's this appealing to sort of northern trade unionist working-class Labour voters who maybe are interested in different things. How do, how do you square that circle? I mean, presumably at some point UKIP is going to have to choose a direction of travel and then... We see that at we, the expense we, of the other. We, we pigeonhole in
1: our mind the idea that um, you know libertarians, are, you know hipsters in Hoxton, um, downloading their apps, but um, you know um, working families in, in Clacton in the north of England have different. On the contrary, I would say that the most effective free market radicals are those who offer a credible retail proposition to people who've most been betrayed and let down by the big state so take for example education we live in a country where most people simply don't have the opportunities to choose a school that rich people have imagine if a party was willing to actually give parents real power Um, we've had a lot of discussion about the NHS and junior doctors and whether or not Jeremy Hunt is being fair on doctors and vice versa I think there's a huge amount of mileage in an argument that says, well, let's get patience now. The interesting thing is Tony Blair, towards the end of his term, started to get onto this territory. Um, The Conservative Party looked for a while as if they might get onto this territory in the early days of the Coalition, but Sir Humphrey seems to have kiboshed much of that. I think there's a really extraordinary agenda... For a party that can come along and make sure that public services in this country are maintained to the standard we want, funded the way we want, but individual members of the public have far greater control over the public services they get. It's a huge area and it squares abstract libertarian ideals with the everyday bread and butter issues that huge numbers of voters face. Why is it this... I can go onto my iPhone and I can select whatever songs I want for me or my six-year-old, or whatever I want to watch on Netflix for me or my six-year-old. But when I'm a dad, I have so little choice, or where I'm a, 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 a patient, I have so little choice. Whoever, whichever political party can square that is, 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 is going to really be onto something. But there's still a challenge,
0: is there not? Because I mean, Nigel Farage has been quite open in the past by saying that he would prefer some sort of private insurance system for the NHS. Just to use the NHS as an example... You know, I mean, there's going to be large swathes of people that are going to be, uh, let's put it politely, suspicious of UKIP when they hear that sort of thing no, come from the leader.
1: No. No. I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with private insurance, and let me tell you why I don't agree with private insurance for health. It'd be as absurd as trying to insure your car for running out of petrol. Um, a lot of health costs are relatively predictable. You know, at what stage in life people are likely to incur certain costs. Not always, but but generally speaking. Um, you 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 might insure your car for having an accident, but you would be absurd to insure it for running out of petrol. I, I, I think the insurance model is, is wrong in theory, as well as problematic for all sorts of other reasons. So I'm, I'm, I'm not in favour of health insurance. I would oppose it. And besides, I think it's a settled political question. People want an NHS that is funded the way the NHS is. Um, and UKIP... Didn't stand at the last election saying it wanted a, a system of health insurance. I know that, that that's what a lot of our critics threw at us. That's what a lot of our opponents said.
0: But so actually, the party leader has said that he, in theory, supports that, even if it's no, not No, no. Party no, no. Policy. We,
1: we, we. I mean, I feel, I feel as if our conversation has suddenly gone back to sort of mid, 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 twenty fourteen something. Um, we do not want a health insurance based NHS, and 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 we made it very, very clear at the last election. I. I I I was assuming that you were aware that we fought the last election with a commitment to the NHS as it is funded. I assumed when you asked the question you were aware that we we, uh, were committed to spending more money on the NHS. So when you talked about health insurance, I I also um, explained why, uh, in in theoretical terms, I I simply don't think an insurance-based model could or should work. But... Within the current system we have, I think you can give patients more choice. Take, for example, in Clacton. At the moment, there are four GP surgeries in Clacton. Three of them aren't taking on new patients. I don't think any of them will take patients uh, for an appointment on a Saturday or a Sunday. If you live in Clacton and you've got a child who's sick on a Saturday, why can't you get to see a doctor? These, These are the sorts of things that need to be tackled. No-one is talking about privatising the NHS or an insurance-based model. What you are talking about is allowing mums and dads in Essex to get to see a doctor when their child is ill on a Saturday afternoon. That, that's that's a perfectly reasonable, sensible mm.
0: uh, 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 request. Another common line of questioning that um, people on Twitter put to you was around your status within UKIP. You've, you've defected before. I'm sure you get this uh, a lot. But, you know... Are you in the UKIP for the long haul? Do you ever see? Your, I mean, what, there's a Conservative named Simon Helmsley who, who says, "What would it take you to defect back?" He's very disappointed in a nice way that you left the Conservative Party in the first place. I mean, if, a, if there was a Eurosceptic.
1: Well, first of all, first of all, I mean, Simon uses the term defection. He finds change parties are not true a by-election. Fair enough, but. Hmm. I've actually got permission for the moves I've made.
0: No, no, of course, yeah. but you, 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 yeah. you, you chose to leave and then you validated yeah. that with... Defection's
1: him. a slightly pejorative term. Sure. Um, uh, Switch parties, then. Yeah. Well, I, I sought the permission of my boss to change role and I got it not once, but twice. Um, so, you know, I I, um, I, I... I did what my boss permitted me to do. Um, I'm not... I'm not... Going back to the Conservatives, I'm... I'm do you know why... I'm not really a conservative actually <laughs> I, I, I want change I like, I like progress and I think the world has got better it's a fairer, more equal world we live in now than it was when I was growing up in the 70s um, attitudes have changed I, I went to talk to a group of um, 14, 15 year olds recently and I realised actually I think school children generally are, are nicer to one another than they probably were when I was growing up and you know, I think people are nicer to each other than they were um, we're not just getting materially better off. We're, we're, we're actually, I think, the world's a more decent place than it's ever been. It's not without problems, but I, I, I like, I like progress. And I, I, I read Matt Ridley's book about um, the rational optimist, and I'm very optimistic about the state of the world. I, I think the problem with conservatism is sometimes they want to stop the clock, and they don't realise that actually, you know. The world is better because of
0: change, most of the time. You've got a bit of a challenge as a one-man band in Parliament, of course. I suppose. I mean, you do you, you miss the sort of, I suppose, not the party machines. Probably the wrong word, but do you miss that kind of feeling uh, uh, you know there. To
1: do you know what? I, I I have much more fun than ever ever before. I was um, walking to do an interview earlier today, and I saw um, about a hundred of my former colleagues lining up for a vote leave photo because they've all decided that they're Eurosceptic which is great and they're all there and so one of them shouted out my name so I snuck around the back and, and so somewhere in tomorrow's papers will probably appear a picture of me photobombing their photo their, their, their fo- no, to be honest I, I enjoy it. It, it I have to do a lot of extra work being a, uh, in a party of one I have to work out how I'm going to vote I've learned that I can't be in two places at once I was horrifically late for this interview for which I apologise precisely because I, I had to try and be in two places at once but it's a lot of fun in a strange way because you're in a party of one other MPs are a lot nicer to you quite often MPs will want to do things with all party support and that means quite often people come along and say they've got this idea would I like to be involved um they didn't always do that,
0: well, certainly the whips didn't always do that when I was a backbench Tory. A couple of final questions. I mean, it sounds to me like the political journey you've been on is bigger than just Europe, if you like. I mean, one of the questions from someone called Sarah talked about, you know, do you regret leaving the Conservative Party, which you've already kind of addressed, uh, because so many of your former colleagues have now come out as Eurosceptics, but it seems to me that you're, you're relishing this freedom that you've got I absolutely love it. more widely. I absolutely love it. Um, I. <clears throat> don't, you don't have a photo
1: in this, but if you look at my Twitter timeline, have a look at that does it look as if I regret <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having, having having a lot of fun and um, I feel I'm doing my job as an MP properly for the first time I, I have a direct mandate from the local people I don't have any whips telling me what to do and I, I this is the other thing don't forget David Cameron didn't want this referendum David Cameron only promised to enact the legislation for this referendum two weeks after the Clacton by-election. I, I'm pretty pleased that I'm doing the things I wanted to do in Parliament, and I, I feel that, thanks to my constituents, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm doing them the way they want, they want me to do it. Let's close, finally, back, to back on the referendum question itself. I mean, how, how, I'm going to assume you're going to think you're going to win, but how optimistic are you about the campaign looking ahead to June? It's going to be a, bit, it's going to be a tough battle, isn't
1: it's, it? It's very close. I mean, I was looking at some polls. Let, let's, let's not be you know, too uh, you know, politician about this. Um, we, are, we are neck and neck at best. It is, it is going to be a very tight race. Um, we can do it. But we're only going to do it not by shouting shrill certainties at people, We're only going to do it by explaining sensibly and calmly and rationally to that large number of undecided voters that actually if we vote to leave the EU, we take back control, it's the safe thing to do, and we make this country better, not just for ourselves, but our children and our grandchildren. If we stay in the European Union, we're exposing ourselves to risks. If we can do that in a sensible way, I, I think we'll, we'll win if we shout with sure certainties. I, I I suspect a lot of people will will be less
0: less impressed. Douglas Carswell, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Douglas Carswell, uh, UKIP MP for Clacton. A big thanks to Douglas uh, for taking the time to join me earlier. Um, a few things to pick up on there before we uh, close today's show. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he kept um, referring to Remain as the riskier of the two. Um, sort of approaches or or sort of verdicts that the British people could give um, in the referendum. That is certainly an argument that is going to be difficult to win. You know, I think at the moment, the public consider Brexit riskier, uh, which is not necessarily surprising as it's, you know, it's it's the change element and change you would imagine is always going to be riskier than uh, staying the same. Um, But of course, what Douglas's comment showed was that, you know, he's trying to take on that argument and to say, no, actually, it's riskier to... Uh, Remain because of you know the reasons that he gave. Um, now it's unclear as to whether the Leave campaign will be able to win that argument, but it's, it's certainly important that they try and take it on because I think otherwise you know if that element of risk is allowed to ferment, um, you know when you consider that the Prime Minister backs Remain, that large swathes of the business community um, back Remain. I know there's a debate about you know the extent to which that's the case, but you know, certainly I think it's fair to say the business community will largely swing behind Remain then this idea of risk is going to be really hard for the um, leave campaign um to overcome and particularly when uh, a topic we didn't really get onto in too much detail today you know particularly when there's not a lot of clarity from the leave campaign uh, as to what comes next you know what sort of relationship um does britain end up having with the eu um and I guess the main reason there hasn't been clarity for that is because there isn't really consensus amongst the uh, the Leave campaign. And Douglas referred to it at the beginning of our conversation that you know it's a broad church. There's different elements within it, um, and then there may not be consensus among the Leave campaign. But that's going to make it difficult. Um, the onus will be on the Leave campaign as we get closer to referendum day. Uh, at least in my opinion, um, to, to to reassure the British public as to what comes next and to what sort of relationship. Britain ends up having with the EU, and if they can't answer that satisfactorily, then you sort of you sort of still feel that they Remain has the advantage because you know the Prime Minister is in control and you know he he has a plan um, basically. But speaking of control, that was always that was off, um, also something that Douglas kept talking about this idea of taking back control, and that for me feels like quite an effective line. Uh, and I suspect you're going to hear this quite a lot um, from the Leave campaign uh, between now and referendum day. Um, it's a simple, concise concept, you know, it's a very easy to understand concept for people, um, whether you agree with it or whether you disagree with it is maybe not really the point and it's not the point I'm making. Um, it's just that, you know, for the average voter, um, the idea that Brussels runs things and we need to take back control is, is something they can get, um, get their heads around and perhaps buy into. So you heard that a lot from Douglas in, in our conversation today, and I suspect, um, we're going to continue hearing that in the future and we also talked about obviously ukip um that for me is you know, going to be fascinating after the referendum you know what happens to ukip then and uh, those of you who listened to the episode we had with matthew goodwin a few uh weeks ago maybe a couple of months ago um there isn't you know, there isn't consensus there on ukip and i i have a suspicion um that you know the, the the views that douglas takes on libertarianism um and the direction that he would like to see ukip take is not necessarily the direction um that the Paul Nuttles or Nigel Farage's um would would want. And he talked at the end about, you know, not being the shrill, loud voice, and you know, he's talked before about how, you know, immigration can't be shouldn't be um seen as anti uh, sort of you know debates about controls of immigration should not be seen as anti immigrant. But certainly the rhetoric that's come from other areas of of you know, UKIP um has, has 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 you know been that. So there's obviously a battle to come um, for the hearts of UKIP, and you know it'll be interesting to see what you know UKIP's very own MP, um, what, what what role he um, takes in that. He's often said he doesn't want to be leader, but certainly something to um, you know, to keep an eye out for. We will be trying to speak to um, people within the Remain camp uh, in the coming weeks, as well as following um, Super Tuesday in the states. Lots going on. I guess we'll be pivoting back and forth. Between the two, and often you know, discussing both uh, the election campaign in America and the uh, referendum campaign here in the same show. And we've, we've of course, also got the May elections coming up, too. So, lots coming in the coming weeks. Um, I suspect, uh, in the uh, certainly next week and in the coming weeks, we'll be back on Tip TV. So, you'll be able to download this podcast as you uh, currently did, however, you did that, either from political betting or on iTunes or on the Podbean app. Um those of you that have Android phones do download the podbean app that 's a good way of um listening to the show um or you'll be able to watch on youtube and uh you know we do appreciate your uh comments on that so do comment on the videos do send me a message or a tweet you know let me know what you think of the video at the moment. The balance of power is very much that we're still getting you know twenty five thousand downloads or audio um you know maybe five hundred to a thousand watches on YouTube. Curious to get people's feedback on which, you know, which format they prefer and you know, what they think of all of that. Um, that's it for today. Uh, thank you for listening. The music you're about to hear is Pollinate by Kirk Pearson, licensed under a Creative Commons. And uh, stay tuned for more episodes of the politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast in the coming weeks.